There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Hello and welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is number 22. It is called Filling the Trough, a discussion of learning theories. And I'm going to try to be as economical as possible with my words because there's a long show ahead. I trimmed it down as much as I could. Uh, But in this third collection of shows called What It Means to Be Educated, I said we were going to discuss the principles and practices of self-directed learning and critical thinking. And then after this, in section four, which is about media and information literacy, we're really going to get into the practice and the analysis of the information that comes at us, and we'll learn some ways to better defend ourselves in the information war we are all in. It was one of my favorite topics on School Sucks, and of course, intellectual self-defense is certainly not taught at any level of institutional schooling. So listener favorite Scott Hambrick returns. I have to warn you, this show has some very strong language, so if you're listening with youngsters, they will learn the F word. I should also add another advisory. Scott and I, at the beginning of the show, have a brief discussion. This is from 2019, but we have a brief discussion of medical solutions for human beings involving therapeutics made for horses. We actually invented that. You'll see what I mean. And one of the things that I really like about this show is there is a very nice thread woven through it of Scott's expertise, which is barbell training. Scott is a strength coach. He, at the time, was the host of a show called Barbell Logic. And the tie-ins of this show to uh, weight training are clear right from the beginning, but oh boy, at the end, they are very, very, very clear. You'll also hear me talk about something uh, that I called School Sucks Neighborhoods, which was a way to create smaller groups versus like Facebook groups, smaller groups of people uh, interacting and building communities like we have in our neighborhoods here in Pittsburgh. That actually became the anniversary community that we do on Discord. Stay tuned after the show if you want to learn more about that. But recently, there was a lot of argument that I really wasn't interested in around the January 6th hearings and some competing theories about what's going on there. So I just create a new chat room in the Discord called January 6th. And if you want to visit that neighborhood, you can. Facebook groups give you none of these options. So I'm kind of like hatching the idea in this conversation with Scott. And here we are uh, three years later, almost to the day. This was July 9th, 2019. And we have an extremely challenging, lively, and connected uh, university community. You can also join the university as a lifetime member by enrolling in the Ideas Into Action Summit. There are links for that in the show notes. Ideas Into Action is a three-part training, a kind of conversational course in gathering information, organizing information, and presenting information, modeled after something called the Trivium, a classical and obscured method of learning 
that has three pieces, grammar, what things are, logic, how things work together, and rhetoric or wisdom, how to persuasively communicate that knowledge and understanding to others. So when you hear us mention the trivium, that's what we're talking about, and it will be mentioned again in this collection of shows. What am I forgetting to tell you? Anything? I probably, but I hope you had a great Independence Day holiday. Thank you for your time and attention. I look forward to bringing more of these shows to you. This is The Essential School Sucks number 22, originally released July 9th, 2019, as podcast 619, Filling the Trough, Pedagogy versus Learning, with Scott Hambrick. Here we go. How did you describe the role of the barbell as a teacher? It does what for these people? Well, it is reality. I mean, yeah, that's it. I call the squat rack a peril, P-E-R-I-L, a peril simulator. Like, you get in the squat rack and you set the safety so that you can't get hurt, right? And you stand up under 405 for the first time and your brain screams and you want to throw it off your back and run down the street and get away from it. It's so scary. But you've practiced, you know what to do, and you've had sensible programming, you've worked up to it, and you know you can do it. And you unlock your knee and your hip and you head for the ground. Right. And you don't want to do it. But you do everything you were trained to do, your body has trained for it, and you drive your hips up out of the hole and you lock it out and you lock it in. But once you get once you walk through that and you get it right and you do it, you can take the lesson you got in the peril simulator and you can take that to the hard job interview, the difficult conversation with the spouse, the whatever. And you learn to prepare, you learn to face it, and you learn to execute, even when you're sweating. It's great practice. Hey, everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to School Sucks. It is Tuesday morning, 4 a.m. I will tell you about that in just a minute. My guest today, quickly becoming one of my favorite collaborators here at School Sucks Project, is Scott Hambrick. You might remember Scott from the recent Simul podcast that I did with Barbell Logic on getting things done. Scott is also the reader-in-chief at Online Great Books. That's going to factor into our conversation today. Brett, why are you up at 4 a.m.? Well, I'm currently doing what I would call an involuntary experiment uh, with biphasic sleep. This is day three. And an explanation of why the experiment is involuntary is actually an important precursor to the first part of our conversation. I will ask you to take about half of the things I'm saying as you listen to it with a grain of salt. Scott, like me, is somebody who puts his body through a fair amount of stress, as you will surely learn today. And he's been one of many fine resources for me um, as I've tried to recover from a couple of pretty limiting injuries. So the conversation begins with an update, and I tell him, I'm doing great, everything is better. I'm considering going back to these even more strenuous activities very, very soon. But this was Friday, and today is Tuesday, and the situations are quite different. Something happened on Saturday. I haven't pinned down exactly what it is yet, but the sciatic nerve pain has now reached its worst condition yet. So while it was once just aggravating to sit down, it now becomes very aggravated when laying down, which is how I sleep. 
So the last three nights, I wake up about three hours after I fall asleep in extreme pain. And the thing that relieves it is getting out of bed and walking around and doing my stretching and neuroflossing routine and then applying some heat and then taking some Advil. Actually, I take the Advil first so it can kick in. And then I can, after maybe an hour, hour and a half, try to return to sleep for a few more hours. It's been an interesting experiment so far, and I will tell you there is actually a fine silver lining. I have made a couple of amazing discoveries. One is called the bath, and the other is called the nap. Yesterday I met the doctor, and they uh, they had me waiting, right? But I'm waiting in the room with the table with the paper, And I don't know how long it's going to be. I lie down. I put my hat over my eyes and I'm out. Until the person walks in the room like 25 minutes later, this was glorious. This is a thing that I might actually start doing. And when I research biphasic and polyphasic sleep, napping is a big part of it. But to me, napping was always just kind of mythical. Maybe now at this point in my life, I'm ready to revisit it. The other thing, the bath is not just an ordinary bath. I was talking with somebody who also struggles with some neck and uh, SI joint issues, and they told me about Epsom salt. If you have any recurring pain issues, it could be exacerbated by a magnesium deficiency, and that's what Epsom salt basically is. I think it's magnesium sulfite. You put a couple of cups of this in a hot bath, and you sit in there for 20 minutes, and it just changes everything. Now, first this happens, and I get in. I don't feel good about this. I feel like it's a very um, aristocratic kind of behavior for a man to take a bath during the day. This was yesterday. Not to mention the fact I walked around for two hours after in a bathrobe in broad daylight. You know, like I'm P. Diddy. Or Jeffrey Lebowski, I guess. Even though I like to think that I aspire to be more of a P. Diddy kind of character than a Jeffrey Lebowski kind of character. But... As I am the only person on my street currently awake, standing in a room, basically talking to myself, I guess it is also worth considering that I might be slowly transforming into a Vincent the Chin gigante kind of character. Google Vincent the Chin and you might be like, yeah, Brett, I think you have what he has. Anyway, if I'm losing you, those are all references to three men who wore bathrobes during the day for entirely different reasons, even though all three men did at some point become involved in a conspiracy to commit murder. Sue me, P. Diddy, if that is your real name. So I don't have the, a high level of enthusiasm about doing this. And at first I get in the bath and I'm just sitting there like a kid, you know, sits in the bath. And I said, this isn't even comfortable. Sitting like this hurts my problems. Then I lie down and submerge myself up to my neck. And everything changes. I stayed in there for 35 minutes. So through a trial by fire, I'm making some nice discoveries. And it's interesting that the things that people do that are so common to do to care for and nurture children, like have a bath take a nap, are things we forget about as adults that kind of relates to the conversation you're about to hear with Scott. So I outlined this show and thought we could accomplish everything in a period of two hours. But these are my favorite kinds of conversations where we don't stick to the outline, where there are tangents and stories and we share some laughs. 
And so now I've been awake for about an hour. I don't feel like I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. I've been standing up. And I'm going to go make a bed for myself on my front porch swing. So that's what I'm going to do. You enjoy this show. By the time you hear this, the results of that will already be in for me. Uh, I'll tell you about them in the near future. But um, I'm sure everything will be fine. This too shall pass. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Scott. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to the next one. And remember, we have more to do from the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. The next installment of that collection of shows will hopefully be coming your way by the end of this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. And when I see you coming down the line with eyes wide open, somewhere in between the past and future, where you drift in time, and you can see a different point of view, you decide what it contains, how long it goes, what this remains. The only rule is it begins, happy, happy, oh my friend. How long it goes, but this remains The only rule is it begins Happy, happy, still my friend Scott Hambrick, welcome back to School Sucks Thank you. I'm so excited to get to see your face and talk to your ear. <laughs> You're becoming a, a real regular. You were just in my feed. I was actually on your show, Barbell Logic. That was awesome. Did any of our people email you or did you hear anything from any of them? On anything in particular? Because I don't think so. I think we'd given out some uh, contact info. I just wondered if anybody had uh, jammed you for more information about getting things done or, or homeschooling. No, actually. I might have gotten some more downloads. So that's oh, great. Good. I think we barely talked about this. I know you and I, you've actually counseled me quite a bit on my two injuries that have been a major setback over the past few months. And I wanted to... Your fallopian tubes and (laughs) prolapsed uterus. What were those injuries? Yeah, I get it. Um, Well, uh, the the thing that I basically diagnosed is piriformis syndrome, which was uh, I was doing some leg press machine and something popped, it felt like, in the left side of my lower back, and it led to a lot of sciatic nerve problems, made it hard to sit down, made it hard to drive. And my theory is it caused an imbalance that might have actually led to me developing uh, medial epicondylitis, which Mm -hmm. is golfer's elbow. So I'm thinking, like, if your spine comes out of alignment, your shoulders come out of alignment, most of those things, when there's a misalignment, they show up in those hinges, like the elbows and the knees, So one day I was just doing pull-ups with some weight and I felt another pop, another pop, this time in the elbow. And both the injuries were were very limiting. I tried to learn how to play racquetball left-handed. I tried to modify my workout so I could still feel like I was being active. Uh, But just now in the last couple of weeks through a regimen for uh, both injuries, physical therapy and stretching and neural flossing, uh, Mm. I am starting to feel... uh, better. I'm able to do more each week. And that is very encouraging. Your uh, horse tranquilizer cream seems to be helping. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should clarify. It's a dimethyl sulfoxide. Yeah. It's a uh, 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It is not approved for uh, medical use by the federal, uh, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. However, it is approved for medical use in the European Union. Mm. And it's a uh, anti-inflammatory, and it's also a transdermal solvent. So it'll take like low molecular weight compounds through your skin into your bloodstream. Um, so I love it very much. I, I'll mix up a little uh, aspirin powder in it, mm-hmm. rub it right on the ouchie. Yeah. And I to five, and then I feel better, and then I go pursue life. What are the typical pains that you're using it for? Yeah, we'll, we'll have people that have the uh, distal bicep tendinitis, you know, like you're talking about either golfer's elbow or the tennis elbow where they have the triceps tendinitis there. Yeah. They'll put it on there. Uh, just, you know, sore stuff, you know, but, but, but the tendinitis is our inflammation, right? It's, a, it's an inflamed tendon. The tendons aren't very vascular. Yeah. You know, when you look at the drawings, they're always white, right? The muscle bellies are red, they're vascular. Um, and those are pretty easy for us to clear up inflammation. But to, uh, so you could take a ibuprofen and it gets in your bloodstream and it goes into that muscle belly. You know, that's great. Awesome. But the tendons typically don't get that. So those transdermals help get the yeah. anti-inflammatory into that tendon because they're not vascular. So we use it for that. My, my shoulders are pretty beat up. I'm an old man, you know, so I'll rub it on, I'll rub it on my shoulders and elbows. That's typically, that's typically the thing. I gotcha. So it works just fine on its own, but you can also add things in, in, in it like aspirin and it will take it right through your skin. That's right. Or an eight ball of Coke. Yeah. Alcohol. I would think that kids could be drinking this way on field trips. That's right. Well, uh, know, options. Uh, we use it all the time for, for those kinds of things. I know, I know, I know lunatics that'll put a little, uh, a little lidocaine powder in there and do like a 1% lidocaine solution with their with their DMSO and rub it on their knee. Like, the, you know, that's the kind of stuff that your ring man does, you know, in the boxing match or yeah. your, 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 you know, professional handler does at the weightlifting meet or at the CrossFit games or, you know, when the stakes are high and money's on the line, you know? Yeah, I gotcha. So, I mean, I did open it. The package came from Amazon. I open it. The first thing I see is do not put on skin, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But I went for it and that was like uh, over a month ago and I found it helpful. So thank you. Even though this is, None of what we're talking about today, or this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. The first order of business was actually your other project. Can you just give the people in my audience who might not have heard about online great books the quick pitch? The quick pitch is this. So many of us went to school and we we didn't get a well-rounded education. You know, we learned we learned what the state wanted us to learn. We might have learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, and we read stuff in textbooks and we read secondary sources, and we didn't learn uh, about Western civilization, and we didn't learn the trivium. You know, yeah. If you're somebody who got one of these, you know, very specialized educations, like maybe one in engineering, maybe you got a great education in engineering, you didn't learn about Plato, and you didn't learn about uh, philosophy, and you didn't learn about Shakespeare. Uh, well, we've created this program for those kinds of people. So you can come to us and read the great books of the Western world with, with us. Of course, there are all kinds of reading lists out there you could get. You could do this on your own, and the books are free at the library, but you probably haven't already done it. So right. <laughs> you haven't already done it, right? So the problem is, is the accountability. The people don't know where to start. They don't know, they don't know how to do it. So, or what to do with it, maybe. Or, yeah, and, and what to do with it. So the, the how to do it is we've cut this stuff up into chunks that you can complete with three hours worth of reading every week. So you read 30 minutes a day, six days a week. And over the course of a year, you're going to read a, a dozen of these great books like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the plays of Aeschylus and so on. 
and we send you text message reading reminders, email message reminders. You can go to our app and get your reading lists and your reading goals for the week. And then once a month, we bring you into an online seminar where one of our seminar hosts plays the role of Socrates. He asks the hard questions and helps you uh, Socratically discuss in a seminar the readings uh, of the previous month. And we believe that the close reading isn't really done with you in the book. It's done when you bring what you've gotten from the book to the other group. When you bring the consciousness of 20 other people to bear on the ideas of Plato, you get a lot more out of it. So we never teach in those seminars. We only ask. There's many jumping off points from even just mentioning online great books we could dig into today. But we were talking about doing a show, uh, I think it was earlier this week, and you said that you were interested in the concept of pedagogy, talking about pedagogy. And I wanted to hear more about what you were, what you were looking for in a discussion like that with me. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I want to know everything. I, I want to sit at your knee. <laughs> I want to learn it. Well, I have children. Yeah. Know. Uh, and then I hope to, they need to learn things and I need to learn things. And then I have uh, barbell coaching clients that need to learn things. And then all the people who online great books need to learn things. So I'm very interested in you know, how do people learn? And I'm very, very interested in how do we help them do that? So I think the pedagogy thing is like broadly you know, teaching theory, how you teach people, right? I guess. Mm. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and then I don't know what the, I don't know what the cool Greek word for, you know, how people learn is what I don't know what that word is. I'm very, very interested in, 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 in how people increase their, increase their knowledge and their skill. Yeah. So 30 seconds ago, I did a very pregnant, uh, mm, when you, when you said it has to do with how you learn. And when you first mentioned the word to me, I was like, Oh, I wonder how well known the origin of the term pedagogy is. Uh, have you ever heard, have I ever mentioned a book on the show called The Underground History of American Education? You, you have. I have. Okay. Let me just, <laughs> it's right out of reach. I'm going to grab it. I know exactly what I'm looking for. I, I do know that pedagogy shares a root with the word pedophile. So Kids. That there. Let's see. Gatto writes, uh, this is at the, uh, the beginning of the book. It's called The Fresco of Herculaneum, this little section what page is that on? It's on page 13, actually. All right, everyone, turn to page 13 in the book of John. <laughs> the word pedagogue is Latin for a specialized class. Now, just think about this. Before I read this, just think about this, that this is the term uh, that is used basically for the science of teaching today, right? The word pedagogue is Latin for a specialized class of slave assigned to walk students to the schoolmaster. Over time, the slave was given additional duties. His role was enlarged to that of drill master. The master creates instruction. The slave pounds it in. A key to modern schooling is this. Free men were never pedagogues. And yet we often refer to the science of modern schooling as pedagogy. The unenlightened parent who innocently brings matters of concern to the pedagogue, whether that poor soul is called school teacher, principal, or superintendent, is usually beginning a game of frustration that will end in no fundamental change. A case of barking up the wrong tree in a dark wood where the right tree is far away and obscure. Pedagogy is social technology for winning attention and cooperation, parenthetically, or obedience, while strings are attached to the mind and placed in the hands of an unseen master. This may be done holistically, 
with smiles, music, and light-duty simulations of intellection, or it can be done harshly with rigorous drills and competitive tests. The quality of self-doubt aimed for in either case is similar. Pedagogy is a useful concept to help us unthread some of the mysteries of modern schooling. That it is increasingly vital to the social order is evinced by the quiet teacher pay revolution that occurred in the 1960s. As with police work, to which pedagogy bears important similarities, school pay has become relatively good. It's hours of labor short, it's job security first rate. Contrast this with the golden years of one-room schooling where pay was subsistence only and teachers were compelled to board around to keep body and soul together. There was no shortage of applicants and many sons of prominent Americans began their adult lives as school teachers. Uh, Contra, a liberal education, which is the education that befits someone who would be free. Mm, Liberal, liberty, et cetera. So I have just tended to shy away from that term since I first read that maybe seven or eight years ago. Sure. So you are more interested in learning styles, theories, practices? Yeah. And how someone like me or someone like you could facilitate someone in that. Mm -hmm. Like as the guy that's running online great books insofar as someone can run that thing. You know, what what can I do to facilitate people in their uptake of knowledge? And and it's not just about knowledge either, right? You, we actually want them to obtain an education. Like encyclopedia contains knowledge, but it, it's not educated. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know what to do with that. It doesn't know how to apply that. The rubber never meets the road for an encyclopedia or the internet. So, you know, I want I want to know. You know, I want to think about and as conscientious a way as I can. How, how can I help people do that for themselves? Sure. So, the pedagogy word is a pregnant poison word. Yeah. So I guess we could start by talking about the box that most people are in with the uh, dominant learning theory, learning theories that exist currently. And there's uh, four, arguably five. The first one everyone has heard of it's called behaviorism, and it is basically the learning theory applied to school. Do you know much about behaviorism? A little bit. What do you know? Is that some Skinnerism here? That is all Skinner. Yeah. Even though it has uh, precursors like Pavlov and Watson, uh, Skinner obviously throughout the the middle of the twentieth century gets most credit for not only the development of behaviorism, but the injection of behaviorist practices into the school experiment. Yeah, so we're talking B.F. Skinner here, and it's basically carrot and stick, right? You reward the behaviors you like, you punish the behaviors you don't. There's a implicit in all that is there is a right behavior. Mm-hmm. There's a right way and there is a wrong way. And um, I'm no postmodernist, but I don't like picking those ways for people. That is not educational in my mind, and that is basically going to be coercive and manipulative. And I don't like that. Yeah, Behaviorism matches well with the efficiency that schools require because it's very much about measured goals, right? Or measured objectives. But once you have that kind of framework and that framework is accepted, you see uh, (laughs) this continued parade of horrors sort of unfold from there. We've talked a lot on my show about outcomes-based education, which is actually conditioning students to leave school or leave a unit of particular instruction with a certain set of values inculcated. 
So that's where it can go. There were many experiments that were private corporations, universities, and and governments, sort of this, this nexus of those three. Uh, and they ran experiments in the 1960s and then applied those things to the school at that point. And that was like the finishing move for behaviorism being put into the schools. To be fair... We probably all need a little bit of that, though, don't we? Hey, that's uh, look both ways before you cross the street. Oh, you did a great job crossing the street. That's the way we do it. Good, good boy. You didn't look both ways. You could have got killed. You can't go outside tomorrow because I told you how the right way to cross the street was, and you didn't. So until you think about it, you know. See, so we do these things to keep, often to keep people safe, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, I don't want to take the kid because he stepped off the curb without looking both ways and beat him. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there is a behaviorism, a behavioralism element in the way that we parent often. And I don't know how to get around it. Well, Maybe I would say... Separate. Maybe it's not a... Pro- I don't know. Let's talk about it. I would say that it's even useful in learning. Uh, if you think about the way most learning works today um, through private instruction, obviously you're going to have clear objectives and measurable goals. It's just there's many situations that produce better results that are sought out by the learner. School doesn't work that way. It just sort of imposes the uh, measurement of goals onto people. But yeah, I mean, I, I think in certain respects, there, there's a cause and effect element to it. And it is, it's not 100% escapable and it's not 100% evil, right? But it does basically view human beings as just blank slates to be, to be written on, mm. I think. Yeah, not just the blank slates, but also the thing I want them to do is paramount. Mm-hmm. Get a yeah. job, fight to keep it, finish K through 12, go to uni, Get a mortgage, make your payments, retire at 65, die at 71, whatever. (laughs) Right, right. So I would say that this is the learning theory that has been imposed most fully on most people. So as somebody trying to teach something, whether you're talking about strength coaching or through online great books, this is the mindset outcome that you are most often encountering. Now, obviously, you're, you're... uh, working with people who are much more self-directed, much more motivated. They're, they're not walking out of schools and, you know, into online great books completely unconscious of, you know, what, what was done to them. But there's a lot of subtlety here. And it, I mean, it's subtle, but it's persistent and it happens over a long period of time. So it kind of shapes the way people think that that whole carrots and sticks. And you see so many people who do what you do, maybe with um, strength coaching or, or just even personal training generally are often using a kind of carrots and sticks uh, system with their clients too. Yeah. I'm a coach. I'm not a cheerleader. Right. Um, I'm there to help them do it properly. And one of the things I love about the strength training thing is I don't have to provide, I don't have to do any sticks. I don't have to have any sticks. The barbell does that for me. You know, if they don't do it properly, they're going to fail. You know, if it's time for you to squat 405 for your PR single for the first time and you don't do it right, you're not going to make it. It's going to staple you to the floor. And, you know, the reality of the situation is enough. Yeah. And I love that. And and so many things in life are like that. If you don't do it well, it's not going to work for you. And, And I love that about the barbell. Um, in, at Online Great Books, you know, we get these clients who are self-motivated. I mean, it's a self-selecting group of people that come to us. But I get, every time we get a new enrollment, I have people that email me and they're like, what's our homework? I'm like, there's, what, there's no homework. Right. Like, read the book. 
uh, and then they say, well, what are we going to talk about in the seminar? What do you want to talk about in the seminar? Like the thing is, the whole thing exists for them. It doesn't exist for me. There is no outcome that I want other than them to have encountered the great ideas that these great authors presented in the best way possible. That's why the books have been around. And then I want them to bring their questions and their conundrums to the seminar or, or bring their ideas about it to the seminar and have the other people in there either help them with the question or have at it, you know, and wrestle their idea with them and maybe either poke holes in their ideas or support it with them. Mm-hmm. I want them to be able to bring what they need to the seminar. The seminar exists for them. It is a tool that exists for them that they can do with it what they will. And, they, and so many times, like I said, every time I open enrollment, people are like, I don't know what we're going to do in seminar. And of course, we provide them with materials that give them an idea of like how the seminar works. I actually will lead them through their first one, but they still like, I'd really like an outline. Well, <laughs> if I do a seminar that has an ER nurse and an Iraqi war vet in it, and we talk about the Iliad, mm-hmm. that's going to go somewhere entirely different than a seminar full of 14 year olds talking about the Iliad. Yeah. Those seminars needs to go where the heck it's going to go. In what you've said in the last two minutes, we've gone to two other learning theories, actually. Can we jump back? How did you describe the role of the barbell as a teacher? It does what for these people? Well, it is reality. I mean, yeah, that's it. It is reality. I call the squat rack a peril, A, mm-hmm. space, P-E-R-I-L, a peril simulator. Like You get in the squat rack and you set the safety so that you can't get hurt and you stand up under 405 for the first time, and your brain screams, and you want to throw it off your back and run down the street and get away from it. It's so scary. But you've practiced, you know what to do, and you've had sensible programming, you've worked up to it, and you know you can do it. And you unlock your knee and your hip, and you head for the ground. Right. And you don't want to do it, but you do everything you were trained to do, your body has trained for it, and you drive your hips up out of the hole, and you lock it out, and you're walking in. And right. then if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if you didn't eat properly and you didn't do your training and you skip some sessions, it'll staple you to the floor like a cockroach. Yep. Yep. Uh, but once you get, once you walk through that and you get it right and you do it, you can take the lesson you got in the peril simulator and you can take that to the hard job interview, a difficult conversation with the spouse, the whatever. And you learn to prepare, you learn to face it and you learn to execute even when you're sweating. It's great practice. Pretty good exemplification of what is called cognitivism, right? Which was kind of an answer to behaviorism. Mm. It reminds me of my early days in education when I was doing outdoor education. So I would take kids skiing, I would take kids kayaking, and they would experience a real inescapable cause and effect over and over and over again, the very same way you're describing. In a, in a school building, this cause and effect, I mean, cause and effect exists in behaviorism, but it's often just uh, authoritative and arbitrarily imposed, right? This is like you, a cause and effect that you can't argue with. So in this designed the effect that comes from the cause, like you do the right thing, here's the effect. You do the wrong thing, you're getting swats, you're getting detention. Right, exactly. It's it's cause and effect, but it's arbitrary or could be. and I think kids understand that, right? Because there, there's another person there to argue with about that. There's a person to resist. You can't argue against nature. You can't argue against physics. And there was also like a, an emotional benefit to that. You know, there'd be this kid in the school or in the dorm, and he'd be like, I'm the baddest motherfucker in East Providence, Rhode Island. And I'd be like, all right, let's get you on the slopes. Let's get you in this river. And it turns out that even if he was in East Providence, Rhode Island, he was not in this river or on this mountain. He would cry 
and he would he would learn a lot about himself. I thought it, I thought it was a good character building kind of experience. Uh, but but back to the cause and effect thing, I think that you know behaviorists were really just focused because of the efficiency of school on getting those behavioral outcomes. However you know, maliciously, they refine them for the needs of the state or the needs of whoever. But cognitivism is more about understanding the process, the individual's process of knowledge acquisition. Cognitivism is about meaning making. So while behaviorism is probably the most prevalent learning theory in the schools, cognitivism would be like some school, maybe more in the sciences, uh, some college, also again, in the hard sciences, and even the trivia method. Uh, relates to cognitivism in many ways. So it's really the idea that if we understand the learning process, we're more likely, like what you were saying about taking what you learn in the squat rack and bringing it somewhere else, like abstracting those lessons, we're more likely to find meaning and a kind of consistency when we go out and search for knowledge in other places, if we can align it with previous knowledge that we have. I have to tell a squat rack story. Please. One hour ago. <laughs> had a young man I hear squatting for the first time. First time ever. Never touched a barbell as far as I could tell. Uh, 17-year-old young man, uh, not particularly uh, physically aware. Mm. Like muscle fibers are probably fine. Like probably a pretty decent vertical leap, but doesn't know where his elbow is, you know. Uh, and he's squatting and he was he was judging everything he did every time. And kind of critiquing himself out loud as he was squatting. And I, I pulled him aside and I'm like, I, at first I, well, I told him, don't do that. Keep your mouth shut. I'm going to, I'm going to be your consciousness here. I will cue you. I'll tell you what to do. Drive your hips up, knees out, butt back, whatever. But he was continually doing that. And I pulled him aside and we sat on the bench together and I was like, Hey man, listen, you've got to be just present to the squat in the moment and you're, you're free to evaluate it, but you're not allowed to judge it. You can evaluate it as you do it. But once you do it, you can't judge it. It's, it's over. Mm. And this is going to be, have to become a mindfulness meditation for you because you're too self-critical. And the squat is like a Japanese tea service. You just do it over and over and over again. And you never get, you never get it right. What do you it's mean? A, you know, if, if you get where you can squat 315 for three sets of five, for example, and do it fairly well, your form's like, let's say your form's 99% right. Mm -hmm. It's time to put weight on the bar. Mm. You can't do it 99% right anymore. It's, it's a constant, it's a constant struggle and striving for perfection in that, in that movement. It's almost like Tai Chi. You know, you never get it right. You never get it right. And that's one of the virtues of it. Most of us aren't going to get to set state records, let alone uh, national or world records, but we can, we can seek that perfection every time we can try to, produce more force, you know, be stronger. Mm. We can also seek the perfection in the movement. And, but in doing that, it becomes a mindfulness meditation. You, you have to be aware of it, but non-judgmental. You have to evaluate without being self-critical, right? Because this kid was beating himself up is what he was doing. Right. And that was going to set him up for long, long term. That would set him up for failure because he can't be cruel to himself in it. He could be aware of his shortcoming. But he couldn't be self-critical. He couldn't be judgmental of that. He could say, I, I got forward on my toes. I must get back. I must get my center of gravity back. That's it. Not, I suck at this, and that one wasn't better than the last one. No. No. It doesn't matter. You have one more rep to do. 
and, and, and you got to do it right now. And you're speaking to definitely a really important aspect of the critical thinking process. As you evaluate what you do without, with, while removing judgment, you're, you're kind of pointing at the importance of how emotions affect the learning process, right? And, and how EQ relates to actually becoming smarter or better at something and how a lower EQ, which, can, which is not static, which can change, I would say, can interfere with that process. Yeah. So we had to learn about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I had to try, I had to try to figure out what was going on in this, in this young man's mind and, and, and help him with that, you know, be stand outside of that and be a third eye that could say, Hey, you know, this seems to be what's happening. You're really being hard on yourself here. And that's not going to help you be successful. Even tomorrow, you've got to be kind to yourself. Know that it's not going to be perfect while yet holding the perfection in your mind as a goal. Yeah. You know, and here are some ways that you might be able to do that. And here's what not doing it looks like. Here's the way to not do it right. Right, right. Yeah. Tough. Can you talk? I, I don't know if I did a good job. No, no. Oh, I, I, I'm sure it's going to be a process, right? Like when, if, you, if you were just seeing this for the first time in this session or over the last few sessions, you probably get your work cut out going forward, undoing some of that. But luckily, I'm a head case, so I get it. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. So helpful to me as a teacher working with uh, these uh, struggling students. It's like, oh, yeah, this, how would you feel any differently right. about this? This is not what people are asking you to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let's go back to online grade books and let's mm -hmm. talk about, you, you talked about um, conflicting personalities encountering the same kind of material and having different outcomes, different viewpoints or different feelings about what, what they read. Can you just maybe talk about one of those situations a little bit? Yeah. I, I hope I haven't told this story on your show before. Um, hmm, men typically, listen, y'all, don't email me about stereotypes, right? Men typically read the Iliad. <laughs> And they think it's a bloody, violent, cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. Typically, they're like, this sounds awful. Uh, Achilles is, notionally, he's the hero. But everybody's, I don't think anybody, when most men, when they read it, they don't like him. He sends his, his friend out who ultimately gets killed. Um, he's petulant. Um, he sucks. You know, people don't, men, men don't normally see the Iliad as... Um, glorifying war. But often the women who read the book think that the Iliad glorifies war. I've seen it happen in, in seminars over and over and over. And these women are like, I don't think we should read this. It just glorifies war. It just makes all this sound, you know, so wonderful. And I think that, you know, maybe this is why, you know, literature like this maybe is why, you know, all these thousands of years later, we're still embroiled in these deadly conflicts. And this is, you know, this is poisonous culture, you know, toxic right. masculinity, maybe although we rarely hear him say those kinds of words, but that's kind of what, what's point, being pointed at here. But the men are like, everybody dies. These men, you know, they were on the beaches of, of Troy for 10 years without their families um, in this pressure cooker so that Agamemnon and, and Achilles hate each other and frankly want each other to die. <laughs> They're in this pressure cooker and there's just blood and gore around them everywhere. And from time to time, you know, Ajax... A, you know, rises to the surface and does something heroic or Hector does or whatever, which is good, but they see it as something awful. 
so you have these two groups that come together in these seminars and they just see the book as something entire. They read the exact same words, the same edition, and they both saw something entirely, entirely different. Right. And then what's the process for mediating something like that? Well, there's no answer, right? You don't want to get everybody to come to the middle and say, well, maybe it's an okay book. I mean, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, there's no middle. But, but hopefully, hopefully we can get the other person to understand a little bit more about why the other person sees it. I often will take them kind of out of the book and bring something else in. And the one I normally go to, I need another few examples, is the first 40 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Does that glorify war or not? Saving Private Ryan is the Iliad. It's an amphibious landing. Everybody dies. Not good. Right. Uh, it, does this first 40 minutes of Saving Private Ryan glorify war? Yes or no? And I'll go around the room. Ask. What do you think, Jeff? What do you think, Susan? What do you think? You know. Has anyone ever said yes? Uh, yeah, they do. Oh, wow. They do. Yeah. Um, they do. And I'm like, w- w- why do you say that? And it's and it's clear to me, and I'm not right, but it's clear to me that the thing is not meant to glorify war. Spielberg washed the color out, you know. Yeah. Uh, the handheld cameras make the make the, the 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 scene more chaotic. Like it's it's clear to me that he's trying to show all of the horror and confusion uh, and disintegration that is existed at Omaha Beach that day. Um, uh, yeah. And then other parts like, okay, let's have this actor with a face and then let's get a dummy of him ready without, with the, with the face not there anymore. Uh, yeah. No expense is spared in that scene to make war look terrible. But, but I mean, is a captain, what's his name? The Hanks character. Is he, but is he admirable? Does he make it all look worthwhile? Okay. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, like if you're seeing it through his eyes, if if it's if it's something that he has to cut through in his journey, what does it all mean? What does yeah, it say? I mean, does he does he make it look noble? Does the sergeant I can't remember that Skidmore plays? I can't remember his name either. You know, does uh, you know he's he he bears all that stoically, and he's a fantastic leader, and he keeps people as safe as they can be. And you know, do these people make this look? Like when done properly, it's noble. You know, do they make it look good? Bravery and purpose in that situation, right? right? So it's showing you how terrible it is, how high the stakes are, but look at these people persevere through it. Yeah, yeah, I I get that. I mean, it certainly doesn't make war itself. Like if you isolate that, obviously that doesn't look good. But yeah, in the bigger picture, what is it saying? Gosh, I wish I remember the captain's name. Matt, Matt Damon's name was Ryan. I know that. Right. <laughs> uh, but you know, Captain Captain Murphy was that his name? No, it doesn't matter. The, uh, the Hanks character. I mean, I think that most of us think would believe that if we could behave like that, then we would have been good people. Mm-hmm. And in so far as that's the case, then maybe they glor- that movie glorifies that situation. I, I don't know. I don't get it, man. But I'm telling you, people come saying that this makes it all look heroic. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I'm telling you, most of the time, those, those two viewpoints are split down, men and women. And there's something, I, I think there's something about, we've talked about this, and people get pissed off. There's something about going to the post office when you're 18 and, and registering for selective service that changes the way you watch those movies. Right. 
I just wanted to ask about the the conflicts or the disagreements and how they're mediated, because I think it relates to this other theory that you would see aspects of in Sudbury schools, but also you'd probably see some of the worst features of it in public school and college, and it's called constructivism, right? Which is basically uh, social constructivism is, you know, as it it implies, social learning. How uh, one person is influenced by a group, uh, it favors things like, you know, free will and human consciousness over concrete knowledge. And it's the idea that you know, individuals exist in this ever-changing, rapidly changing, very dynamic world. And um, the, the outcome is often a lot of subjectivity, right? That people, I, I mean, people construct their own meaning of the world. So there is obviously some truth in that, but it has, as we know, as we've seen in higher education, it's kind of gone off the rails a little bit in certain cases, right? Yeah, uh, so you, you also you actually said social learning when I talked about the seminar to online great books. Yeah, I guess it probably does have some of those aspects, but we typically use that use that group experience to force people force. Mm. How about this? Let me let me go at that a different way. <laughs> uh, thinking out loud in front of other people typically makes people raise the bar for themselves. You know, like here I am on this podcast and I just stop myself and rephrase that because I know people are going to be listening. I'm thinking out loud and speaking somewhat extemporaneously about something that's important to me. So having the, having, raising the stakes a little bit makes me think more deeply, communicate more clearly. And then hopefully we'll subject my thoughts to what are hopefully the higher thoughts of the other people in the seminar and they can then hold me accountable. Right. Say, wait a minute. I didn't read that in the book. Where did you see that? You go pull the chapter up, you read the paragraph and you're like, I think you misread that. You know, point of fact, I think you misread that. He didn't in fact say that he said this other thing. Oh, you're right. I got that wrong. Um, or in the case of the, the Iliad thing, um, actually showing people that there are two different ways of looking at some of these stories, more than one way of looking at these stories. It's got this almost Eastern um, effect. There is no right when it comes to reading a piece of imaginative fiction like that. Yeah, I think that is the unfortunate outgrowth of constructivism. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And the presumption that's built into that is entitlement to that opinion, as we've seen this kind of spill out into culture and even levels of higher education, uh, the entitlement to that opinion being respected or taken seriously. So just endless amounts of, of subjectivity emerges on college campuses. Uh, you know, you say something that you think is a fact, maybe. And an opponent, instead of arguing against it with evidence to support a different conclusion, talks about like uh, it's an invalidation of my experience, right? right. And then uh, on top of that, we've also seen uh, this new set of rules about like intolerance and hate speech. And now what started as the warm and fuzzy and flowery, everybody's entitled uh, to their opinion is almost dancing into fascism in some cases, you know, or, or not, not capital F fascism, but fascist type behaviors in, in people who are seen as enemies of free speech and uh, open debate. You're no longer the, the entitlement to everybody's opinion meant that like ultimately certain people would not be entitled to their opinion. Yeah, and entitlement to an opinion. I mean, everybody should have an opinion. Mm-hmm. 
but that doesn't mean it's going to be right. I, I, you know, I believe there's a right opinion and a wrong opinion. If yeah. you have the opinion that there's a purple, you know, teacup orbiting Uranus. Yeah. Yeah. You need to support that. So in the seminar, if somebody says, Hey, uh, I think that this, I think the Iliad glorifies war. We're like, oh, you better have good reasons. And so they need to say, you know, they talk about how Achilles was so handsome. His armor gleamed in the sun and he was the swiftest and most revered among all of the people because of his prowess in war. Or uh, when it depicts this man's death, it talks about how large he was. And when he fell to the ground, the earth shook and his armor rattled about him and the, you know, and the virgins gnashed their teeth, you know? So if someone has an opinion, we require them to support that. They need to have, a, have reasons. Right. So we're talking about collaboration and exchange, right? And, and maybe asking questions like, have we each selectively chosen data or in the, in the case of one of these books, decided to look at information that maybe supports some pre-existing belief system yep. that we had, you know, confirmation bias. And maybe then to, if, if the answer to that is yes, why are we, why are we bound to these beliefs? Why am I bound to this set of beliefs? Well, you're bound to maybe this uh, conflicting set of beliefs. Like that would be that would be interesting discussion. It just seems like um, as constructivism, which you would see the best features of construct, uh, constructivism in places like Sudbury, right, where it's student centered. So this is the idea of the teacher being the guide on the side, where in behaviorism it was the sage on the stage, right, or it's top down, it's instruction or instructor centered. It favors intrinsic motivation. It factors in the human emotions. There's a social component to it. So there's lots of good things about it. I think the problem is, is that when people clamp too tightly or get stuck in the bubble of one learning theory, and maybe they become kind of extremists about it, or they see it as the answer to the problem of this other learning theory, then eventually it's it's, I think it's more likely, like it happened with behaviorism. When behaviorism was the only game in town, in the schools, it spun out of control. So in these three theories that we've talked about, behaviorism, cognitivism, and constructivism, I would say, just to use our, uh, our trivia model, right? Behaviorism is input-output, processing not required, really. As far as where the focus is, Input, output. There's not that processing step in the middle is not there. Cognitivism, I would say, is more input, process, output. That's kind of what cognitivism is all about. That metaphor of the computer is frequently employed. The belief that people are rational beings who require active participation in what they're learning. <laughs> the audio listeners don't get to see your faces. But, but potentially rational beings. Does that, right. does that get a different face? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> when, we, when somebody says something in one of our seminars, we say, why? Mm-hmm. Or so that what can happen. Or, you know, explain that to me. We want them to show that they were rational. Or we want them to realize that they weren't. Yeah, exactly. So you're taught, what is your process? What is your processing? That's a healthy intellectual discussion. I think so. And I would say constructivism or or the worst applications of constructivism, which kind of spin into this subjectivism that we see in a lot of like social sciences in higher education, a lot of online political debate. In our whole input process output model, it's only focuses on output. Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit what your process was? You're saying the wrong thing. We're not having a debate. We're not having a discussion. We're not, we're not, going, we're not defining our terms, which would be the inputs. You are outputting the wrong opinion, the wrong speech, and uh, that needs to stop. 
So I, I, would, I would say that that's each one of those things with behaviorism and con, uh, constructivism in their worst forms. Cognitivism obviously has some limitations, but it does factor in that processing in a way that the other two really don't. That, or that the way that the other two have been applied really don't. So knowledge acquisition. Mm-hmm. You were talking about this uh, constructivism in social sciences. Um, yeah. The, the gold standard for the creation of new knowledge is the peer review, right? The peer reviewed journal. Yeah. I've got this, I've got this stuff I figured out or discovered and I write it up all nice and tidy and I send it in to someone or someone's and they give it a peer review and then, boom, and then they publish it. And this peer review is how we verify truth claims at this point. Right. So you end up with a bunch of crazy, a bunch of, a bunch of crazy shit, frankly. You're like, oh, it's peer reviewed. He's like, wait a minute. Like, so we, so we've democratized the process of verifying truth claims. We have our peers vote essentially, or, or give it the thumbs up or thumbs down if they're the sage on the stage, right? If they're mm-hmm. the sage, they can give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And that's how we verify truth claims. I've got this science background. And, and when I was a young person, they were teaching us about the scientific method. I thought that all peer-reviewed science was all reproduced or before it would be printed. Like you and I, we come up with an experiment. We get our test cohort. We, do, we, we record how we did the test. We, we print the results, come to some conclusions. We print the conclusions. Then somebody that peer-reviewed it, this is what I thought naively, that somebody else just did the same darn thing and got the same answers. Mm-hmm. They're like, yep, really did happen. And then they publish it. But that's not what happens. What was the study? Was it Bogosian? Was he the guy who they, they submitted all these like social justice papers? And one was like, why dog parks are sexist. Right. And they all uh, survived a peer review process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's is that this constructivism writ large? Like output. I, I, I don't I would have to see what those peer like I really want and I probably could find this out there's probably more information than what I've encountered so far I would want to know this because I've never participated in any kind of peer review process on, on an academic level you know well, for the example that you gave of those people that submitted these spurious um, you know studies mm-hmm. social sciences uh, journals I mean they become peer-reviewed Right, and it will become part of the gospel at that point. Um, so, I mean, how much more do we need to know about it? Like, what? So, they've socialized the verifying of truth claims. It's just like if you just get enough people and the right people to say it's true, then it's true. Like, what's what the hell's going on? Well, I don't know. I, I think it still kind of goes through. Like, I get what you're saying, and unless I'm missing something, to me, it's still like doing this ceremony of objectivity or evaluation or meeting a standard, mm, right? Ceremonial. Yeah, yeah, because it's like maybe it's like, oh, this is uh, this supports third wave feminist theory about, you know, this, this and this. And it just gets uh, rubber stamped. May, I mean, may, I hate to think that that's actually happening. And I'm sure I could I could find information about what Boghossian did in his group that could prove me right or wrong. But they're still going through this this procedure which says, no, when something is written, it's not like the title makes us feel good or it's your opinion. It's knowledge that you constructed, so obviously it's valid. Um, even, even if there might be talk like that, like this is your experience and we're all about validating your experience, whatever it is, or whatever you've identified to be the truth 
Um, obviously, there is no such thing as truth. So, of course, like what what could get in the way? What could create friction of you know getting your paper uh, in it being mandatory reading? You know, at it, it all levels of whatever this uh, scientific or uh, other academic discipline is, uh, they're still saying no. It has it stops here. It is reviewed, which sounds like some objective standard is being applied to it. I just like. I'm if too ignorant say, about it to know. If they said it was reviewed, the implication is, well, this one wasn't rejected. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, basically. What the fuck did they reject? <laughs> you know, you got the, the white supremacy in the dog park. Got, you know, complete fiction got re- approved. You know, what got rejected? Like, what do you have to do to get rejected? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's what happens when this sort of relativism... And this idea that, uh, oh, you're entitled to your opinion stuff just goes completely awry. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I don't know if I, if I put that, that fully into that, that process, fully into constructivism. But obviously, there's no shortage of uh, polluted, tainted constructivist ideas circulating in higher education. Now, the lower levels of school, too, you know, in, in high school, uh, this kind of, of subjectivity. Is this where all of the uh, group projects kind of stuff comes from? Okay, we're all going to split into groups here and we're going to write an essay together. What? Is that where that crap comes from? I, I don't know. I mean, I think there, there's, there's benefits of collaborative learning. Everything that exists inside, you know, the, this container of this will be imposed on you or this is obligatory, I, I think that's the problem. When you talk about how do you help people who are adults who are interested in being autodidacts, whether it's with their bodies or with their minds, what has been imposed on them so far, and it is many of the worst features of behaviorism, which is, you know, I would say pretty bad, and the worst features of constructivism. Well, cognitivism gets lots of at least acknowledgement, I think, at various levels of education. But even if the trivium process exists in school, like it does. I think I just said this in, in my last conversation where it's like, all right, here's the beginning of this chapter. It's a science chapter or a social studies chapter. Here's a bunch of words, right? First thing you're going to do, I mean, I remember exercises like this. You're going to find out what these words mean and you're going to write that on a piece of paper. Then you're going to read this chapter and you're going to see how these words interconnect. You're going to see how these words, these definitions that you've learned make sense together. And then we're going to make you show understanding of that thing. A lot of making and forcing along the way in this process. So a learning or critical thinking methodology, I don't remember ever really emerging from that. I don't remember it ever being made explicit, but it's definitely that cognitivism puts it into school, right? Because I I mean, it's like some thinking at some points of, of schooling and college are required. Right. You have to take raw pieces of information. You have to be able to integrate them and you have to be able to turn them into something else. Mm, you said make and force. Make oh yeah, of course. Is there a role for coercion in education? Oh, I don't think so. Is there I mean, if you're thinking of a specific example, especially not, as a parent. I'm not it seems like some things are high stakes and that we need to know them. You know, maybe okay. maybe my back the back to my example about um looking both ways before you cross the street, you know, maybe, you know, there are sort of things that are, that are things that are safety related, perhaps. I don't have a specific thing in mind, but uh, it seems like some things are high stakes and you just, you know, and uh, maybe my impulse is to not leave it to the kid to get it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a bit, yeah, the the stove traffic, those kinds of things. Yeah, stranger danger. I mean, even though those are extreme examples, one of the things that I always had a lot of success with was before something happened, right? because obviously, yeah, you have to use force on a child. Uh, if they run out into the road, you have to grab them, you have to restrain them, you have to basically kidnap them out of the road. Right. <laughs> you know, Tackle them um, on the curb if you have to. Ideally, and I know there's probably Kidnapped people out of the road. <laughs> I kidnapped my child for four seconds when they there might be people with four or five kids listening to this and they say, Oh, here goes Brett talking about parenting with zero children. But the success that I had managing groups of people as a, as an educator, right? At one time, I mean, I did outdoor adventure. At one time I held the title of behavior manager Mm. in one setting at this boarding school that I worked at. If things were left to chance, if things were not clearly defined, you might wind up having to put your hands on a kid. I had to do it when, when environments got chaotic, that would happen. People would spiral out of control. But if we were doing something that was high stakes, like we're going to put six kayaks on the roof of this 15 passenger van and we're going to drive it into the mountains and then we're going to put them in white water and we're going to go down this river. Everything needs to be extremely procedurally clear. Here's what success looks like. If we detect that we are not achieving success, we immediately abandon this, no questions asked. And you scale it down from those high stakes situation to just like, situations to just like setting expectations in everything you do. Uh, I have two nephews. They're like nine and 10. All they want to do is fight with each other about everything. Like two old ladies. And they, even, they, they even use these tones of voice that I'm just like, why do you guys, I don't get why you guys talk to each other like that. And before we do anything, like I'll take them to a candy store. Um, I'll take them to the beach. I don't like it. Parents who do not communicate to their children once those children are old enough that they have needs too, that they are people too, that they are not living a sacrificial existence. So I will say, if I'm not having a good time, I'm out. It's over, right? I, I think that's perfectly fair. Yep. And if here's what this, me having a good time looks like. You know? If you do this, then I do that. And also, <laughs> considering that I'm... Uh, 25 years older than you guys, at least. I also have more wisdom about what makes a good time and what makes a bad time in this situation. So I think that the, the proactive, I know it's a very long-winded way of saying that I think you eliminate those, those opportunities where like forceful teaching has to be used or forceful intervention has to be used if the situation is set up in the right way with the right expectations. Right. I've had, since I was 21 years old doing that work and all the way up, even through interactions with the young people in my whole family, I've had consistent success with that approach. And I understand, I, I certainly understand from afar, it's not always the easiest thing with your own children. Yeah. I think you have to, you have to get ahead of it. Like, like in the cross in the street thing. Yeah. Like, uh, hey, babe, talking to one of the kids. Mm-hmm. See that dog there that got ran over? He didn't look both ways. Yeah. He's dead in hell. Got to look both ways. <laughs> you, you start with that. You're, walk, you're taking a walk in the neighborhood and there's a dead squirrel. Flat. Yes, there are those. Very available. And you're like, hey, Mr. Squirrel didn't look both ways. Uh, Mr. Squirrel can't get back to Mrs. Squirrel. Um, you got to look both ways. You can't get home. 
you know, it's all over. You got to get ahead of it. But uh, I don't know. It seems like, and again, this is sort of, I don't have a specific example, but man, it seems like some things are high stakes. You know, like oh, if your kid's 14 and they still can't read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what are we going to do with this kid? He's, you know, but, I mean, that's an extreme example. I don't know any 14 year olds that have the capacity to read, but yet have not learned to. Uh, but it seems like at some some point the line must be drawn. That's that's my intuition. I know. I, I haven't seen that line with my own children. I'm trying to. I feel like we should try to leave people with something a little less macabre than um, here. Look at this dead thing. Look at this dead squirrel, babe. If you look, <laughs> right, look what happens. How about this? How about this? Your kid's 26 years old and still lives in the basement. Failure to launch. Those types of situations, um, whether it's in romantic relationships or parent-child relationships, the intervention at that point is difficult because so many things have already gone. When you get to that point, there has been such a long and rich history of yeah. bad decisions and interventions that should have happened and didn't. They and should caused- have showed him the dead squirrel all those years ago. <laughs> No, you're, you're right. But, but my fear as a parent is that I have a lurking situation where the pre-work has been left undone. Yeah. It hasn't cropped up yet. Right. And then when that seed that crop up Yahtzee, like, what do you do at that point? You know, those are the things I, I worry about. I do what I can when I can. And as I think of it and, you know, and I try to stay ahead of everything, but my fear is those things where we didn't do our pre-work, you know, and uh, we have a long history of leaving things undone and, now it's go time. Right. I hope not. But I think everybody's going to be okay, Brad. How old? Well, they're 14 and 16. I think they're yeah. going to make it to adulthood and uh, not be uh, claimed by malaria or uh, what did you die of on Oregon Trail? Dysentery. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll see. Before we completely move beyond like what people have learned, I think you mentioned having children that age and other things that that people in that generation have been exposed to. Have you ever heard of an idea called connectivism? No. Connectivism is kind of debated as a learning theory because they say it's really just a blend of, even though I gave the big three, obviously there's other theories of learning uh, from all over the world, but um, it basically is trying to understand how internet technologies have created new venues and new opportunities for people to learn and share information and what that means, what that changes about learning. So if people want to dig into it, uh, that's what construct, uh, connectivism is all about. I would say that SSP, you know, School Socks has elements of connectivism, Online Great Books has elements of connectivism, right? Because you're, you, we do see a kind of social constructivism in there, maybe some of the more positive aspects of it, but you might also see some behaviorism. I don't put out a show because like every, like you've seen these people, they put out a show every day right? because every day they put out a show, you know, and, and sometimes they have great things to say and sometimes they don't. And there's some people who are really talented who can at least have interesting and engaging things to say. Um, You know, the value is obviously subjective, but there's been people who are like daily podcasts I've listened to and I've said, I got nothing out of that today or yesterday, but last Friday was good. I want there to be an objective. I want there to be like some kind of measurable value for the people who are going to listen to this if I'm going to say something. And if there isn't, I'm, I might not say anything that day or that week if I'm just... Be respectful to your listener. Yeah, just drawing a blank or not feeling inspired, then I'll wait till that inspiration strikes and I can 
hopefully clarify, like, here's some value you'll get out of this, right? In that respect, we're setting a goal. Yes. So you don't put out podcasts unless you have something good to say because you love your listeners. That is true. Even though when we talked about doing this show, I was like, let's just bullshit. And you were like, no, 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 Brett. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I was just kidding. Of course, every show is meticulously planned and carefully executed. No, no. I I mean, I, I do feel that way. I know how valuable my time is. I at least want to entertain people and have them usually walk away with like one, two, three beats in a show where it's like, huh, hmm, something to think about, something to learn, something that you already knew to think about in a different way or something to, to challenge people. So um, that's, that's just an example of like setting some outcomes, like some, some expectation of outcomes as, as a kind of assurance. And that is taking a cue from behaviorism in a way and I would say that, you know, just back to the idea of connectivism, what we do also, uh, while, it, while it has some behaviorism and it has some constructivism, it has plenty of cognitivism in it, right? Like in online great books, you're talking a lot about how to read a book, right? Yeah. Adler's book. I've done like whole six part series on how the memory works. That mm-hmm. is very much, you know, digging into what cognitivism is all about. I, I'd say it's probably the, uh, a good portion of the work we've done at School Socks. We try to talk about what education and what learning are versus what happens in school. Yeah. Here's what I've taken away from this, Uncle Brett. Mm. We need all of them, I think. So, so at Online Great Books, you go to three, you go to, what is it, four seminars in a row, I send you a t-shirt. Oh, I send a you carrot. A carrot. If you don't do your reading, well, shame on you. No, well, they paid. They, they, when they paid and gave us the credit card subscription, the subscription, they set themselves up with some accountability. They said, this is something I value. And they know that if they don't do their reading, that that, that, that money that they spent on the subscription was for naught. You know? So mm-hmm. they've got their own stick there. I'm, I'm not here to hurt them or make them do something they don't want to do. But they've, just, just signing up, they've instituted their own stick. We do the social stuff. Right, we already talked about how our seminar we conduct our seminars. Uh, connectivism, I'm gonna have to call BS on that. I mean, you know, not everything's not everything's web, you know, 9.0 or whatever. Come on. Well, I mean, it's criticized because they're saying, look, you're taking all these other different learning theories and you're just putting them in this container of the digital age. Right. So, you know, I mean, people could look at what we do and describe it that way, and it's not unfair, but it's not exactly, it's kind of like, I think we talked briefly about mindset theory in a private conversation we had. I would say that connectivism is kind of more a theory of theories than it is a specific theory of learning. It's a theory of learning theories. How meta. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but I, I, I think that different situations probably my takeaway is that different situations probably merit some aspects of all of these four main teaching theories. Um, and we're going to use them all um, from time to time, but to not, not put all of our educational eggs in one of these baskets and try to not use this hammer when we need a screwdriver. You know? Can I just tell uh, the audience a little bit more about connectivism since we're mentioning it and kind of criticizing it, but not giving it like a real specific definition. I hate to not give things definition. Shit on it. <laughs> just categorically just no tell me more well, right. well, before you say that it sounds like some marshall McLuhan stuff there's something about the medium that would actually change the educational message i th- i think that idea exists in it yeah 
Um, the main function of teachers that embrace connectivism is to introduce the learning environment and then, much like a constructivist, let collaborate effort develop naturally between students. This is exactly what happens in online courses when a community builds and creates a whole new classroom for modules and courses. Connectivism is a learning theory that explains how internet technologies have created new opportunities for people to learn and share information across the World Wide Web and among themselves. These technologies include blah, 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 all the web technologies that we know about, uh, all the way down to specific platforms. A key feature of connectivism is that much learning can happen across peer networks that take place online. In connectivist learning, a teacher will guide students to information and answer key questions as needed in order to support students learning and sharing on their own. Students are also encouraged to seek out information on their own online and express what they find. A connected community around the shared information often results. So that is somewhat applicable to what I do. Sure. But I don't know if that's anything new. I mean, you know, people might put up a flyer at the community center in the 80s about wanting to put together a quilting class. I, I, I don't know. That's called proto-connectivism. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I will say that there have been some emergent things that came out of um, us providing these tools that we have at Online Great Books. We have what we call open sessions. Like if you want to talk more about Aristotle's physics, you can go to the open session. We don't have an interlocutor in there. We don't have a seminar host in there. It's just all peers. And they have taken those over and they have reading assignments for those and discussion topics. And those things have, be- have taken on a life of their own mm-hmm. and they demand them. <laughs> like if for some reason, for some reason we haven't scheduled one for, you know, like we have a Plato open discussion but there's a lot of Plato that could be talked about. They're like, we need more of them because we need to talk about this one and this and this and this. And then also we've had, we've had a group crop up that are learning Latin. We've had a group crop up that are learning Greek at Greek, ancient Greek. Um, and we just, we accommodate them. We let them use the infrastructure we have um, because we can do it at very, very little cost. And you know, so we've got these little interest groups inside our organization that are pursuing these things they care about. It's really neat. Let me bounce an idea off you. I don't mm-hmm. care if it derails the whole show and this is I'm all for it. I, I love it already. All right. So I have a Facebook group that has 2,500 people in it. I'm okay. selective about who I let in there when people, I, I, now part of that selective process is sometimes I don't check who's requested access for four or five months in a row. Right. That helps keep the number down. But when I do go in to approve people, I say, how many mutual friends do we have? How long have they been on Facebook? Do they have a real name? Do they have a real picture? Uh, how many groups are they in? If they're in 700 groups, they're just into joining groups. So I don't want them. I want people who are interested in what I do or at the very least the topics we cover. You know, that's still swollen to 2,500 members, Swole. which I, I find, yeah, it's, it's a swole group. And I feel like it's beyond uh, what I think is a workable network size for what it is. And I actually, inspired by my move to Pittsburgh, right? And, and also the idea of the tipping point and this idea of how human tribes used to start self-selecting or kind of editing once their groups reached a certain side, almost if size, almost if there was something instinctive about how big a group could get. Are you going to practice eugenics on your Facebook group? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm so excited. <laughs> so I've mentioned before, the city I now call home is very neighborhood centric. 
And it's actually a kind of dynamic that I never really noticed anywhere else I lived. Like, sure, you'd be aware of the fact that you had neighbors, like people lived near you. But I also lived in, in certain types of dwellings. Like, you know, I remember I had a condo in Salem, Massachusetts. I didn't even know the people. Who, I didn't know the guy who lived across the hall from me. Yeah. I saw she left his shoes in the hall. And I knew like uh, way more about his shoes than I knew about him. You know, not since I was little and I lived in like a development like a housing development where everybody knew everybody in a small town. Have I experienced the kind of social dynamics in the neighborhood in which I currently live, which is this uh, observatory hill in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is very much defined by its neighborhoods. Almost every neighborhood has its own unique identity. And people in the neighborhood, they have block parties. Mm. And there's something that I really like about community on that scale. And I was recently trying to explain my unconventional worldview to uh, a new person that I started sharing ideas with recently. And I was saying, yeah, I don't think things work on the scale of a, a city or a state. Like when it comes to government, you know, I don't think things work on the scale of a city or a state or a nation. What? Oh, it, what's, the, what's the ceiling? Well, that's, it, it was, we were talking about government, but I'm just even talking about a group of people being able to function together. Right. I said, I really like the unit of a neighborhood. And so to apply this, I've also started to get blocked by Facebook. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So I'm rethinking how to use Facebook. And I'm thinking about just deleting this group. And before doing that, taking some surveys on why people are there and what they want and why they listen. And then subdividing this group of, you know, 2,500 in members and probably another 2,000 people who are on the outside who've requested access saying, hey, if this is why you're here, we have a school sucks neighborhood for personal development. Cap the group at 300 members. And I could set up eight or nine of those. And it would also show me like, what am I most interested in? What groups do I want to spend my time in? Who do I want to interact with? I've actually, um, you know, Richard Grove, he's been doing this uh, for the last few months. He's been doing this autonomy course, a really, really lively discord community for this. And every Tuesday night, I go in from like seven to nine and I do a Q&A and it's great, but it's never more than like 30 people who are mm-hmm. trying to talk to each other at once. And, uh, you know, we've had a few like heated exchanges or disagreements in there about, you know, variety of topics, but I love that. I wish I could do that more regularly around my own brand. And I'm thinking like, maybe it's just to scale it down and and to have these little niche neighborhoods and just see what happens. Like, why? Who cares about how many people you can cram into a group? Yeah. A Facebook group is, has no business utility as far as I can tell. Right. It's just a pain in the ass uh, for, you know, people that are trying to do something. The thing that I've always been plagued by, you know, about to celebrate a one decade anniversary of the show is hard to define what it is and who it's for. It's, it's many things to many people. And I thought this might be a worthwhile social media experiment to run to see if we could actually build like learning and cooperating communities mm. inside, uh, you know, this Facebook so-called community with its standards. Is Facebook the right platform? Probably not. We need some other platforms. This is a thing that people say. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we do. Yeah, I, I agree. Discord. I love Slack. Uh, I actually like Instagram, which is a Facebook company. I don't like Twitter. Uh, I, I hate Reddit. YouTube is the trailer park of the internet. I don't know. We need some other stuff. 
No, I totally agree. And I think Discord is great. And when we start doing the uh, virtual summit series, I'm going to lean on Discord as a, as a communication platform uh, to get the people involved talking there. And we can do Q&As there. I'll run an audio live stream out of there. I'm going to run out of time. I feel like we're halfway done with the show. I do too. There's all kinds of practical and behavioral things. And I, when I say behavioral, I, I don't mean behaviorism. I mean behaviors, behavioral changes that people can make to improve their learning and their thinking. Or, or to create better learning environments for themselves uh, or for their children if they have like home education environments. So I think we should do in the near future a part two on this mm. conversation and dig into all that, you know, talk about the trivium a little bit, talk about critical thinking, talk about, I, I don't really care much for like learning styles. I think it's kind of like that. Talking, yeah, I don't know. I was talking to somebody recently about Myers-Briggs yeah. And, uh, you know, they're like, do you know your personality type? Everything exists on a spectrum, right? Like, am I an introvert or am I an extrovert? I don't know. I like being the center of attention. I'm energized by social situations. But after I've been in one, I need to, like, not hide under the bed, but, like, between my mattress and my box spring. Like, no one will look for me there. No like one will find me there. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's just, like, one of the spectrums in... Um, uh, Myers-Briggs, but the learning theories, I think, are the exact same deal. You know, it's like, well, I, I, you know, I'm a spatial learner. Um, you learn everything spatially. Like, no, a- absolutely. Like, what are you going to learn about sonnets from? Yeah, I don't, I don't like that stuff. You know, I, I think learning is like, it's intrapersonal, it's interpersonal. Uh, I hope occasionally it's logical. If you're trying to confine someone to too narrow a space, uh, it's going to lead to to mistakes and probably a suboptimal learning condition for them. I am interested in problems of knowledge creation. Tell me more. Well, you go to school and they're like, I'm fixing to teach you this. Mm-hmm. And right. I'm going to teach this and then you're going to have the knowledge. Well, where did the knowledge come from? Like somebody wasn't taught and then the teacher was taught and then the teacher was taught. And it's teachers all the way down. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it came from somewhere. And there's this, there's this process of knowledge discovery. So we could talk about, you know, uh, was the calculus a priori? Did it already exist and Newton and, uh, uh, kicked the dirt off of it and exposed it for the world to see? Or is it actually created by him? I don't think that even matters. But it was discovered one way or the other. And then after that, then people could learn it. And I think that learning when best done is a process of aided discovery. Right. If you work, uh, if you work through like Euclid's geometry, you know, Euclid's elements and you start with all the definitions and then you just work your way through it, you come to the Pythagorean theorem in like problem 42, I think, or something like that. And Euclid helps you discover it. And then once you discover it with this aided discovery, it's yours forever. You know, we went to school and they're like, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. We memorized it. It was a magic formula. Yes. About it. Yes. But if you do all of the proofs and you understand the definitions, you work your way up to it, man, you own it. So I'm very interested in trying to find ways to help people acquire knowledge through their own discovery. Like, I don't want them to have to just reinvent the darn wheel every time. But if we can, like, by hook or crook, help them have these eureka moments the way they acquire the knowledge seems to make it stick better. 
you know, the knowledge is deeper, it's more complete and it sticks. Mm -hmm. And I'm always looking for a way to do that. Yeah, I think it was Richard Grove who said, you know, you're able to put handles on these things and then move them to other places, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes portable. Yeah. A lot of what we have learned throughout our lives didn't seem like it had a portability to it. Right. Because it was also happening in this environment of uh, coercion. You know? the quadratic equation. I still don't know what the fuck that is. You don't? Well, oh, I, my goodness. I, I want to tell you. I've now, moved we, it around. I've handled it. I've manipulated it. I passed the test. Mm-hmm. But where did it come from? Like, how did that, how did somebody, whence is that derived? Like, uh, Actually, I was thinking of the distance formula. Oh, I wanted to tell you what the distance formula was, which, because, which was interesting because the distance formula is the Pythagorean theorem like mm. coded into an XY, uh, you know, finding two points on an XY axis, the distance from those points, right. it's creating a triangle out of them and then using the Pythagorean theorem. Good old Descartes. Kids never knew that, though, when I tutored them for SAT, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, then that's, that's a nice place to leave it for today. And we'll pick it up and do all this. Other, I had so many, uh, so many ideas we didn't get to here, but we can do another uh, two-hour conversation uh, in the very near future. Yeah, it's always so much fun. I like yeah, it. I love I this. I learned something. Get you did. Playboy magazine joke. It's so cool. Wait, wait. What's the Playboy magazine joke? Well, when, you, when you're in, these extrover- in, the, in your, your extroversion mode for too long and you have to retreat to between the mattresses. Yeah. That's, just, a, that's somebody else's joke? Stuff. No, you hide yourself away like an old Playboy magazine, I said. That's right. I was like, oh, was that a joke that was in Playboy in the 70s? No. And I'm thinking oh, I'm okay. so clever. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That, 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 that was also funny. And I missed it when you first said it. Yeah, it's in there. Uh, no, it's always a pleasure. Hey, listen. Go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash school sucks and sign up. If you do that, you get to support Brett's show. Mm-hmm. Get to uh, let us help you become the well-read person that you want to, and you get to go talk about whether the Iliad glorifies a war or not uh, with your peers, and it's darn interesting. Uh, all of these books contain surprises like that. Like you'll read it, and you're like, "This book is certainly one this one way," <laughs> and then some very bright, interesting person that has uh, great insights will say, uh, "No, it's the other way." Yeah, abuse you that, and it's it's always surprising and it's always interesting. You can go do that and you can follow me on uh, on Instagram if you want. You can go see me uh, squat and get nodes bleeds and you can see uh, our Instagram lives. Where we talk about books and barbells and uh, bourbon and all the things that make life worth living. You've squat. done the nosebleed squat. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've only ever seen a nosebleed deadlift. Wow. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm Scott underscore silver strength on, on Instagram. Yeah. No, um, yeah. In the spring, you know, got a little got a little allergy stuff going on. Sinuses are a little inflamed, you know, squat, squat heavy. Yeah, you'll leak. You'll hmm. leak a little bit. It's all right. Interesting. I've never heard anyone promote their Instagram before by saying, come see my nosebleed. Yeah. But in this context, it's like, yeah, I kind of want to see. I mean, I already follow you on Instagram, but kind of want to see that. I want to find that video. Uh, hey, uh, would you like me to share something very intimate with you? Yeah, sure. Sure. I squatted this morning and it was not fun. And okay. I, I did what we call, I, I filled the trough, Brett. What does that mean? Well, you put your belt on, you put it on real tight, and you unrack that bar, and you take a big breath, <gasps> and you go down into the hole. And when you come up, sometimes the intra-abdominal pressure is just too great, and it has to go somewhere. And you just soft serve in your bridges. No. And we call that filling the trough. And um, 
And I did, but I made my set. Wow. I made my set. This makes me want to stick with the little leg extension machine that I'm no, switching no. back and forth with the old lady on. No, no, no. No, we need to That is the stuff of legend. We got to get you squatting heavy cuz uh you know, that's where the that's the numinous that's the the numinous space. That's the uh, that's where you get to see Buddha. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, does fill the trough have like uh, a, a tie-in for learning, you know? <laughs> Uh, because wouldn't it be hilarious if I named the show that, and then here at the end the audience finds out what it means? I think it does, because we're our, your mind, Brett, is like a trough, and you can either fill it with stuff like I did on my squat earlier today, or you can fill it with those things that make us better, those things <laughs> that make us virtuous and lead us to a better life. Scott, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Always fun. Thank you, man. All right, I'll cut it there. Terrific! <laughs> Poop jokes. Come on. We gotta do what we can. presentations consider returning value and then getting more value what do i mean by that there's a couple of ways this can work first of all you can support the school sucks project and our efforts through this essential school sucks collection and our future efforts i am uh, going out on the interview circuit hitting the streets as they say to promote what we're doing with school sucks promote what we've done at schoolsucksproject.com and on youtube and you can lend your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash school sucks. In fact, you can look through the show notes and see numerous. Maybe you're looking for something less of a commitment, but you can see numerous ways to support us there. We also have a digital knowledge product that I'm extremely proud of. It is called the Ideas into Action Summit. It's linked right there in the show notes. It is a gosh darn masterclass on the critical thinking process needed to be more persuasive. There's a section on best practices for acquiring new information, learning, a second section on assimilating that information, logic, and a third section on presenting that information in a persuasive way or rhetoric. But that's a great way to do the value for value and then more value exchange with me. You get a lot of value on the back end of that one, including lifetime membership in our private uh, community. We have three hours of Zoom call meetings every week where we interact, 
And last week we had a, a really great conversation in one of the meetings about using that time more as like a mastermind. So like somebody can bring a problem. It could be a parenting problem. It could be a professional problem. It could be a personal problem. Like people are getting to know each other and be friends in there in a, in a really, really nice way. So, you know, with a certain size group, we could really run the university private community meetings like masterminds if people wanted to participate in something like that. So it's soft socializing, just like regular social media, but it's also support and accountability. It is a group entirely away from the watchful eye of Mark Zuckerberg and friends. And you become a lifetime member when you purchase the Ideas Into Action Summit. That's SSP University. Just spell that university.com slash ideas into action to see how the whole program works. And finally, for some of you, one of the best ways to get value from the show, return value to me, and then get, at this point, an almost immeasurable amount of additional value in return would be to support our partner for this Essential School Sucks endeavor, and that partner is Praxis. Click the link in the show notes, or you can go to discoverpraxis.com slash podcast to get a copy of the free book that explains a lot of their secrets and practices. It's called Forward Tilt. It is by Praxis founder Isaac Morehouse and Praxis graduate Hannah Frankman. And I want to just make sure there's kind of a, a clear expectation of how the Praxis program works in the current moment. So months one through three are called a boot camp where participants learn how business works. They discover career paths that might be available to them and match their interests. They also get coaching on how to develop a personal brand and build the confidence required for that kind of self-assertion, putting yourself out into the world like that as an individual. Months four through six are called placement. So here they create a professional portfolio that showcases their current skills and developing skills. They get access to the entire Praxis hiring network. They start working with a placement coach and developing a plan for good fit opportunities with businesses and they start doing interviews at growing innovative companies. Months seven through 12 are the actual apprenticeship. That's five months of real world experience. So they get an apprenticeship coach. They start a full-time paid apprenticeship, applying the new skills and knowledge that they've learned in the Praxis program so far, while gaining extremely valuable, again, real world, not college, real world experience and the ability to learn from entrepreneurs and established professionals. One more step. This one might be kind of startling to some of us who chose a different path. Month 12, graduation. Leave the program, keep your full-time job, gain lifetime access to the Praxis Hiring Network and Mastermind community. Continue your career with confidence. That's how the program works. It's a year. So if you are the parent of a teen or you are the teen, please go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast and start learning more.